All right, hello, and welcome back to Real Seekers. I'm your host, Dale, the Real Seeker, and this is uh, the part three, the final part of my evaluation of Eastern Orthodoxy and their claim to know what the biblical canon is and to be warranted on that basis. And uh, this is just uh, part, uh, again, I was over four hours on the other one, I think, so I, I'm just breaking this one up. It'll be a very short episode, just giving a summarization of all of the substantive points from parts one and two um, that I would like to discuss with Tyler or have Tyler respond to in his video and or to hear from Orthodox commentators as to what they think I got right or wrong and that sort of thing. So I'm going to list the substantive points as well. Uh, I've got some questions for Tyler and the Orthodox uh, that I would like to uh, have answered uh, as we do follow-up shows um, if, if Tyler's going to do that. So let me share my screen here, go back to the PowerPoints. Great. Okay, so summary of the Orthodox canon. Here are the uh, substantive points that I, as I see them. So the first thing in part one that we did is remember the preliminary presuppositional problem, the presuppositions of the Eastern Orthodox versus the Protestant mindset when reading scripture. For Protestants, look, we're free. We, we follow God's normative epistemic standards of following what we believe is true as guided by the Holy Spirit to the best of our abilities. Uh, we're, we're not bound by the conscience. Uh, our consciences are not bound by anyone else, any other human being, fallible man, who claims they know better than us. No, we follow the evidence ourselves to the best of our abilities. Sometimes we get things wrong, sure, uh, even with the guidance and help of the Holy Spirit, we are still contaminated by sin. Um, but the Orthodox, on the other hand, their consciences are bound by the authority and the inter biblical interpretations of, quote-unquote, the church. And, you know, uh, therefore, they, they have to bind their consciences. If they personally disagree with something, they have no choice but to bend the knee and, and agree with the Orthodox church, or else they're not Orthodox anymore kind of thing. Um, okay, so yeah, without this is without an infallible biblical interpreter, the Orthodox believe that sola scriptura inevitably leads to a lack of biblical knowledge. It leads to private interpretational chaos and an arrogant notion of individualism over the normative authority, i.e. the binding of an individual's reason and conscience based on centuries-old extra-biblical tradition from the church by which they mean the Orthodox Church. And um, there are about four points here. Um, so number one, uh, scripture is divinely revealed. So the Bible was divinely inspired. This was between Vulture and Tyler Fowler. Um, and basically it says so that the laity, um, they, could, uh, they can interpret what they heard and read and understand and apply this within their Christian lives from reading the Bible directly. Some verses are, in fact, clear and uncontroversial, and we aren't dependent on some outside human authority like the bishops of the Orthodox Church to come up with a council or come up with practices in the church to tell us what the Bible really means in these cases. I also dealt with 2 Peter chapter 1 that seems to speak against private interpretations of the Bible, that is not what that verse says. It is talking about the inspiration of the original apostles giving that message in the first place, or the inspiration of the New Testament authors as they wrote down 
in the first place, just like the prophets. It has nothing to do with the people receiving that message and interpreting it for themselves uh, as they hear and or read it for themselves. Um, I also raise the point that there, uh, you know, Jay Dyer says we have no normative authority without the Orthodox Church to bind us and to tell us authoritatively what the Bible means. That's just rubbish. We have epistemological and logical standards grounded in the Lord our God himself that binds every human being automatically. So we need to follow truth and knowledge. When we've got knowledge of something, we are obligated, epistemically obligated. In other words, we have that normative ought. It's an epistemic ought where we ought to believe what our logic and reason tell us the Bible is saying, because God has given us those cognitive faculties and with the help of the Holy Spirit, he repairs them enough that we can be guided to scriptural truth if we are true Christians and living according to God's standards. Um, there's also the point of philosophical fallibilism. So this notion we don't need to have an infallible source of information or source of warrant in order to know something. I can have not gain knowledge from fallible sources of warrant. And in fact, we do this all the time and we don't need absolute certainty before we can know something. So that's uh, the four points on the presuppositional problem between Orthodox and Protestants. I'd like to go over with Tyler uh, or some of them or see if Tyler gives a solo show response video on these. The second thing is that we have a complete Protestant biblical canon. Orthodox, you've got an incomplete, at best a partial biblical canon. You, you don't, you divide up the books that are inspired and infallible versus canonical, first of all, confusing matters. And secondly, you don't have a complete list of inspired and infallible books, nor do you have a complete list of canonical books. Um, so this is a, a big problem. And I would like to kind of go over this, you know, is this an issue? I, why do uh, people like Jay Dyer try to stick it to innocent Protestants like myself on the canon issue when, first of all, Father John Whiteford admits the canon is not an essential issue at all. So I'd like to see discussion on that. Is knowing the canon, is it really essential to be a saved or to be a saved Christian in any way or not? And especially if it is, then why? what do you do? Is orthodoxy garbage then? Because you don't even have a complete list of books. Who are you to judge your betters? The Protestants are superior. We're better. We have a complete list. Same with the Roman Catholics. So yeah, th this is a fundamental, important, substantive issue that I think hurts the case for orthodoxy that I would like to um, have a response to and or to discuss with you, Tyler, or whoever else wants to to be on the show as we investigate this substantive topic. Thirdly, then we have the appeal to infallible tradition, proving the canonicity. And there are two aspects. So starting with aspect one, this is again from part one. We found out that the Council of Trullo is the first eucumenical, universally binding council, 700 years after Christ, um, where it lists four previous councils that were regional or local at the time. And I found out from Father John Whiteford, these are now binding and universal, universally binding on all Eastern Orthodox today. So if there are contradictions between these lists, that disproves Orthodoxy. I, I 
discovered that that's the, how the doctrine works. So Trullo affirms the apostolic canons list, 39th Festal Letter of Athanasius, the Third Synod of Carthage, and the Council of Laodicea. These are the four things that list the books that all Orthodox have to say, yep, those books are canonical, and or, yep, those books are divinely inspired and or infallible. Um, and I raised certain issues uh, on that front. So, yeah, uh, I'd like to see um, Father John Whiteford, for example, give um, a substantive objection to the apostolic canons list where I said, look, these date after 341. And every historian in the world agrees with this, which is true. He affirmed that. And scholars think that because one of the reasons is it quotes directly from account, the Council of Antioch, 20 different quotes, exactly the same, that uh, was in 341 AD. Now, one of the, Father John Whiteford gave an objection saying, well, how do you know it wasn't the, maybe the Council of Antioch copied this apostolic canons, and therefore we can maintain the apostles still wrote this. Um, I just don't believe that uh, based on scholarly consensus. But that was a substantive rebuttal, and I think, since, given this is a round one investigation, it deserves, okay, I need to probe a little further and look into this a little bit more as to why the scholars say what they say, that it dates after 341 AD and after 400 AD, if you, if you do the uh, apostolic constitutions uh, copying as well. Okay, uh, he didn't, uh, got no response on the other thing, so I'd like to see, you know, like, what are some of the responses to the issues with some of the other, these other three councils. Okay. Um, oh yeah, and what do you make of Cyril of Jerusalem before all of these in 350 AD, where he's kind of linking canonicity as being the same as divine inspiration and infallibility. And that seems reflected in the council of Laodicea too. So it's it's almost uh, the Sitzim Lieben here is, well, if you, if it's inspired and infallible, you read it in the church. They're the same thing. And Cyril of Jerusalem is teaching uh, catechumens, like what Tyler is now, uh, don't read these apocrypha. They're, they're not inspired. They're not infallible. They're just man-made stuff. Don't worry about that. That's only the spiritual mature. We can handle that because we know how to interpret man-made documents. But they're not inspired, not infallible. If you're a little babe in Christ... Uh, don't read that nonsense. Read the actual real word of God, the inspired infallible word of God, which is the Protestant Bible, not the Apocrypha, the 39 books of the Hebrew Bible. Um, if Cyril of Jerusalem is saying that around the same time, that seems to me to make sense of Canon 59 and 60 for the Council of Laodicea. The Council of Laodicea is universally binding on Orthodox, therefore you've got this problem. You've got some splaining to do. Mr. Orthodox. Okay. Uh, part two. What are some arguments proving that the tradition doesn't just teach aspect one, that it gives us a, a canon books that include the Apocrypha, but how do we know that tradition is in fact infallible? And my first argument uh, of four was that the Protestant Bible and or Protestants themselves use or need to use extra Protestant Bible traditions or church traditions um, that the Orthodox Church recognizes in order to, um, in order to, uh, yeah, it, it uses them or needs to use them for whatever purpose. 
And there were three sub-arguments here, right? So number one, there's the fact that inspired biblical authors use and or presuppose certain extra biblical traditions. And I responded to that, that it's non-sequitur, that doesn't matter, just like Jay Dyer says, well, the Orthodox church traditions quote the pseudepigrapha or pagans. That doesn't mean they're embracing everything as infallible in those things. Um, issue two, that the confirmed, inspired, and infallible Jewish Judaism has an oral Torah or tradition. And I gave Michael Brown's devastating critique as a worldwide expert in this area based on seven arguments proving. And in his book, which I possess, it's something like 150 pages devoted to destroying this false claim of the rabbinic Jews and apparently of the deluded Eastern Orthodox Orthodoxies today. They've, uh, they've, you know, drunk the Kool-Aid, so to speak. This is just not true. There is no oral Torah that Moses infallibly preserved down to the Jews, down to the time of Jesus. Sorry, it didn't exist. Issue three, Protestants need to use oral tradition in order to determine the canon. And in some cases, I said, number one, this isn't necessarily true. We have other ways. But it is true that Protestants sometimes do use extra biblical, Protestant biblical traditions to determine the canon, such as, well, how do we know the Gospel of Matthew was written by Matthew, the Apostle Matthew? Papias tells us, the early church fathers tell us, and stuff like that. So they'll say, well, that proves that you need to think they're infallible. My argument was no. Once again, we can gain knowledge from fallible sources. There's no reason to assume the knowledge here is fallible, is infallible before we're able to glean knowledge that the contents of Papias are true, that Matthew wrote the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, this is just, again, it's a non sequitur and a failed argument. So I, yeah, this is a substantive point. Uh, secondly, there's the doctrine of infallible apostolic succession, which includes the preservation of infallible apostolic teaching. Um, and they point to, number one, the New Testament teaches this. And I, I looked at the four verses that they use, and I said, actually, it doesn't teach anything like this. Um, secondly, even if they did, this is a viciously circular argument. Orthodoxies are, are begging the question. Um in this way, they're reasoning in a circle. They're, they're saying their infallible apostolic tradition tells, um, how do they know that there's an infallible apostolic tradition that they believe in? Well, because the Bible says so. And well, how do, how do they know which by the infallible, which biblical books of the Bible are in fact infallible? Well, they go back to their so-called infallible apostolic succession of tradition. So they're assuming uh, reasoning in a circle there. Um, also, there are the three models of pre-Gospels oral tradition, and the two which applied to the early church prior to 70 AD, both uh, the evidence seems to indicate they were both fallible. And once the eyewitnesses started dying and the uh, uh, Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD, this put tremendous pressure on the fallible formal control, teach, you know, student-teacher formal relationships where they control the tradition that way, through strict protocols in a rabbinical way type thing, and the informal control model where the church communities held control over the tra Jesus traditions. And this put a strain on the, both of these models, and that's why at that time God needed, okay, now it's time for an infallible formal control mechanism, written scripture. And written scripture alone is the only infallible thing because God knew 
the fallible means are going to be corrupted within the next couple generations. And sure enough, we see that corruption seeking into the early church fathers and in the second century and, and beyond. Um, the evidence just supports this. And the Orthodox, I would like to see, do, do you have actual proof? You're the one making the claim. Don't just attack my scenario here. Um, you need to prove. Can you prove to me that the formal, oral, formal controlled uh, mechanisms in place prior to 70 AD were infallible and remained so after 70 AD? If so, Tyler, I'd like you to address and what, what, then what was the need for an infallible written scripture at that time? Why that timing? It seemed, it makes more sense to me. It's because God knew it was a fallible mechanism. So he needed to replace it with an infallible written scripture as the new formal controlled mechanism. And over time, the next few decades or so, that for, the remnants of the formal controlled mechanisms died out as the remaining eyewitnesses died, including John the Apostle or John the Elder in the mid-90s AD. Um, so yeah, I'd like to see some work on that and proving your claims. Uh, also, there was the early church fathers, and I appealed to what I think were the earliest, as well as the best sources from the position of the orthodox perception. So let me know if I missed that, but I, I think I've selected the best to help the Orthodox. Uh, if I've missed someone that's even better than these guys, let me know. Um, but yeah, the Didache, which uh, dates to the time the Gospels were being written, uh, or more probably around the, the second, early second century, something like that. But uh, I gave it to the Orthodox. Let's say it's late first century, and you can start seeing. Number one, it teaches a twofold ministry, not a threefold ministry. So that proves the apostolic succession and teaching was fallible, not infallible, as the Orthodox say. Secondly, because this is a major doctrine, it's not just getting, oh, well, uh, what was the age of Jesus? It's not just an error of thinking he's 50 versus 30 years old. There, this is a major error that touches upon the very foundation of the Orthodox doctrine in church. Um, uh, and also uh, beyond that, he, he presents the informal control model where it's the community that is appointing bishops, elders, and apostles, and they're judging them on the basis of written scripture and or if it's in the late first century, written scriptures they have, the Old Testament, whatever New Testament writings they would be privy to, as well as the remnants of the previous formal controlled and informal controlled mechanisms from hearing the eyewitnesses providing that oral teaching. And you can see the transition over the next few decades, where it's progressively becoming more and more reliant exclusively on the written scriptures, not eyewitness, oral, formal controlled traditions, and or even infallible controlled traditions, because these were fallible and they were starting to get corrupted, certainly by 150 AD. There was just no way to rely on them in any kind of convincing way, let alone relying on them as though they were infallibly preserved traditions from the apostles. Same with Clement of Rome. He doesn't teach us anything about an infallible teaching. Um, he also supports the twofold ministry, not the threefold ministry, which is needed for apostolic succession doctrine to be true in Eastern Orthodoxy. Uh, Ignatius of Antioch does stress the distinct role for the bishops. So perhaps now he's the first. Nobody else agrees with him at it in his time. They all disagree with him and agree with Protestants. 
Ignatius is unique and he's making stuff up. He's he's one stressing the distinction of the bishop and saying, man, obey that, that little bugger. Bind your conscience to whatever he says. He will protect you from the heretics and all this stuff. And you can see this new Sitzenlieben pressure on Ignatius. However, Ignatius contradicts apostolic succession because he teaches that the teaching is in the presbyters, not the bishops. Bishops like him don't get to preach or teach. It's the presbyters who do that. So uh, directly contradicting the notion of apostolic succession, whereby it's the bishops really that ordain. They alone ordain and are the ones preserving the infallible apostolic teaching all this time. Finally, we have Arrhenius. Uh, fine, I'll give it to you. In 180, by 180 AD, um, that's the closest I've seen in uh, up to the second century that, yeah, he, he more or less supports the apostolic succession doctrine as understood by the Eastern Orthodox. Again, he doesn't say it's infallible directly, so that's still unproven. Uh, but he certainly believes that there is an inerrant preservation of the tradition apostolic tradition and teaching. The third argument, the infallibility of Christ argument from Father John Whiteford, this is another argument. Well, Christ can't err. Uh, the the uh, church, the Orthodox Church, is the body of Christ, therefore the body of Christ can't err. And you can see the, uh, I've updated this slide with the green things here. This is John Whiteford's Orthodoxy uh, version one, right? Jesus cannot err. The Orthodox Church is the body of Christ. Therefore, the Orthodox Church cannot err. And uh, one thing that I, I totally missed in my evaluation is that this is just a, a, it's a deductive argument. There's no probably, so it's not inductive. And it's just an invalid argument. The conclusion does not follow inevitably and necessarily from the presumed truth of the premises. I can assume Jesus cannot err, and I can assume the equivocating understanding of the Orthodox Church is the body of Christ. If I grant those two premises, it does not follow that the Orthodox Church cannot err. So this is not a truth-preserving deductive argument, and it is therefore invalid. Uh, that's the major criticism here, alongside any issues of equivocation. You know, how well, how do you define body of Christ? Or, or, you know, is the body of Christ associated with Jesus? They're not identical. And we know for a fact that there are errors, some errors in the body of Christ. So you have to redefine things as to what an error is. And um, yeah, uh, you know, the church. Well, what is the church? Well, they mean the Orthodox Church. Equivocation. No, the church is the invisible universal church that Protestants believe in. That's the true church, not your visible Orthodox Church. You can't just equivocate on that front. So there's a lot of problems with that argument that I'd like to see us go into and Tyler discuss. And um, well, you know what, in fairness, I think that me and Tyler discussed this in private. And he said he admitted this is not a good argument. It's a failure as an argument that John Whiteford gave here. Um, so yeah, you, if you agree with me, fair enough, just come out and agree with me, um, Father John Whiteford, because I know you're in the comments. Um, this is based on a one-minute comment that you made in a video. So I, I'm understanding that in context. And if you want to provide additional details or corrections to, to your argument and provide more details that might strengthen it a bit, um, that's great. But 
all I know is based on what you presented and what I was able to find in that video, uh, this this argument sucks. It does not prove anything. Uh, and it's just invalid <laughs> to start with. It doesn't get off the ground. Um, finally, there is the fact that the New Testament authors or Jesus and the apostles use the Septuagint, which contains the Apocrypha. So this is like endorsing it, saying the Apocrypha is inspired and infallible here. And this is a different, this doesn't prove the infallibility of the tradition per se, although it does prove directly the infallibility of the Apocrypha. And I guess by extension, yeah, technically speaking, the, the Apocrypha is extra Protestant biblical tradition. So it's true. I would call it church tradition. So in that way, yeah, you could say it's, it's an argument for the infallibility of church tradition, church tradition. Um, I'm being a little bit loose with terminology there. Anyways, but does this argument work or not? No. We saw it. We have no proof that Jesus or the apostles used it. They spoke in Aramaic. They probably didn't use it. We have no proof that the Septuagint as a whole existed in the first century, let alone the first century Judea. Uh, probably from the evidence we have, it didn't, as per Dr. James White, world's expert in this area. And um, yeah, just because they use the Septuagint, that doesn't mean that they are endorsing the Septuagint as a whole as being infallible and inspired um, any more than the quotations of pagans and stuff like that. So those are the substantive points of my parts one and two videos. Now, just kind of ending off, here are my five questions for you, Tyler, and for others or of the orthodoxy uh, persuasion. Uh, leave it in you know, comments and stuff like that for me to look at. Um, but Tyler, this is what I would like you to address in your response video if it's solo and or discuss with me if we're going to do a discussion show. Question one, are there any other arguments for the supernaturally inspired and infallible extra biblical Orthodox Church traditions that I've just missed? I've neglected. Uh, again, I was using uh, limited in my sources. I was limited, uh, using primarily sources from the Faith Unaltered videos and the experts that you've brought on. Uh, obviously, I did that for a reason because my um, original intent was aimed at you and preventing you from becoming an Orthodox. So I I selected or prioritized sources that would be relevant to you specifically. But let me know, I, in general, I, I've uh, assessed four arguments for the infallible church tradition. And uh, yeah, have I missed any uh, anything else? Question two, why would God set up a two-tiered system of scripture whereby some books are inspired and infallible and others are canonical uh, to be read in the church litur liturgies, but other inspired and infallible books are not to be read in the church? They're non-canonical. What was the point of such books? How did the illiterate Christians learn about God's inspired truths from such non-canonical books? Are you saying they were just for the churches of Ephesus to read? I mean, they that was read in the churches and then we just forget about the book of revelation for example um this seems odd so what's your answer to that question three what does the doctrine of the apostolic deposit entail if a later council universally affirms or denies something does that mean it is always binding on all orthodox past present and future um so i'll just say father john whiteford has answered this question in the comments to part one the answer is yes uh, it is binding, um, but there is some nuance here in that there's different uh, types. There's apostolic tradition, there is epi 
ecumenical traditions. There's there's four different types. So watch. Uh, anyways, still, uh, Tyler, I would like to hear your take on it, but be aware, Father John Whiteford has already answered this question in the comments to my part one video. Um, so I, yeah, I'm going to look over that and assess that to see if uh, are there any lo problematic logical entailments uh, on given now that I understand it, the answer is yeah, it is uh, binding universally, right? The Ecumenical Council of Trullo means that the four previous councils that were regional that it affirmed have always been universally binding on all Christians, past, present, and future, and they are ecumenical as well. Um, oh, uh, yes, yes, yeah. Uh, but that doesn't mean that they knew about it. Uh, so, for example, the canon, the Apostle Peter didn't need to know about the canon because that's a eucumenical tradition, not an apostolic tradition. Both things are infallible, according to Orthodox, but there are categories of traditions that make up this apostolic deposit. So, uh, again, yeah, we can discuss this uh, in the discussion show because it's, um, yeah, there's, there's some nuance and complications here. Question four, if a universally binding council affirms previous or local reach. Okay, so the answer is yes to question four, again from Father John Whiteford. Um, finally, question five, is the 1672 Synod of Jerusalem universally binding on the Orthodox, on all Orthodox, or is it just a regional council? Um, if so, how do you reconcile what it says with modern Orthodox teaching about reading scripture oneself in their own languages? Doesn't this synod imply that canonicity and sacred scripture status overlap? They are the same thing, just as we saw at the Council of Laodicea and Cyril of Jerusalem back in the 350s AD. Um, so yeah, they, they are pretty much synonymous. Uh, how, if not, how do you reconcile this synod uh, with prior councils like Trullo, which are binding on all? Um, okay, yeah, so basically I... I I think my question here is about 1672. I've got the answer to the rest of it, but um, you know, why is, is this universally binding? Am I not allowed to read the Bible in my own language? Um, doesn't that sound messed up and tyrannical of tyrannical King Henry to you if uh, we're not allowed to do so? Um, yeah, so that's it. That's, that's it for my evaluation of round one on the Eastern Orthodox claim about biblical canonicity. So yeah, I will uh, hang on, stop sharing, but that's it. And um, next time in parts three and four, I'm going, and maybe there's a part five, I don't know, but um, I'm going to be switching gears and evaluating the Protestant claims. So this time the Protestants have the burden of proof. Can we provide warrant for our claims about the biblical canon and, and inspired and infallible books in the Bible that we accept or not? Uh, just a note, it is going to be a long while, months and months before I get into this, just because I am way behind on solo show promises that I have to make up for, as well as guest shows. So I'm trying to catch up with that. And during the summer, I'm hoping to take a break and catch up on, finish off my Shroud solo shows and finish off my updated Shroud chapter. Um, I also need to finish off my hiddenness of God argument that I haven't touched in like what like two years now. Uh, I need to finish that because uh, that's been sitting there half finished. Uh, I want to do an ontological argument. I also want to finish off my Jesus mythicism refuted series because I have one more to go on that. And that's going to transition and lead into 
a new solo series whereby I'm defending Gary Habermas's new book and giving my argument from the historical evidence for the resurrection, because by that point, my shroud argument, at least for the solo shows, would have been completed. Now I want to move on to the historical case for the resurrection and get into a long series on that and you know why I believe that uh, that is evidence for a religion authenticating miracle as well. Uh, and only then will I start looking at finishing off this series and evaluating the Protestant case for the sola scriptura position. Are we warranted on that front? Um, but yeah, so so my apologies. Um, I'm way behind on promises and stuff. You you can blame the you know people. I constantly get requests. I'm doing like I did like what four podcasts this week. So um, it's hard when I'm doing podcast so many podcasts every single week to like stay on track and do the hardcore research needed for these solo shows. But I am hoping this summer to ease off a bit and focus on research, research intensive solo shows, just like this episode, a uh, series of episodes on the Orthodox canon claims. Um, but yeah, so the good news is for this part, for the East North, this is a contained unit, right? This is my round one investigation of uh, the Eastern Orthodox claim for the canon. Tyler can evaluate this as a unit. You know, what did I, I say, no, Eastern Orthodox, you are not warranted at all in believing the biblical books you point to are canonical, nor are you uh, warranted in believing they're inspired and fallible. You have no persuasive arguments or evidence or reason uh, to believe in the, the Bible you're reading. You, you might as well just put it down and that sort of thing. Um, you, you have no right to think that you're warranted in terms of the Bible canon that you're reading and believing it to be inspired and infallible, at least based on the four arguments that I've seen. If maybe I've missed something else or misassessed something. That's fine. Tyler, bring that up in the response video and or let's bring that up in the discussion video and that will bring to completion my round one investigation on the Eastern Orthodox canonicity claims. Uh, yeah, that's it. Have a great week, everybody, and uh, take care. Bye-bye.